And I invite everybody to take their Bibles and to hear the Word of God for today. The Word of God for today is coming from the book of Judges, chapter 16, verses 15 to 22. Again, Judges, chapter 16, verses 15 to 22. This is the word of God. Then she said to him, How you can say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you have made me a fool of me. I haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she proud him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So he told her everything. No razor has been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite, dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength will leave me, and I will become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she went war to the rulers, to the Philistines. Come back once more. He has told me everything. So the rulers, the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shape off the seven braids of his hair. And so began to subdue him, and his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I will go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and took him down to Gaza, biting him with bronze shackles. They set him to grating grain in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after he has been shaved. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you bow for a word of prayer? Oh, Lord God, we do give you thanks. Thanks for the scriptures, for your word that is true yesterday, today, and forever. And we thank you for your presence here among us in us, around us, in the air we breathe. And we're gathered to glorify you, and we're gathered because we believe that perhaps you want to do something today. Perhaps you want to say something today. And so our eyes are open, our ears are listening, Help us to have humble hearts before you to receive what you have for each one of us. And I pray, O oh God, that you would bind my tongue and my lips, that no false word might pass from them, that you would even move me aside completely. For Holy Spirit, you can speak directly to each and every heart. What I have to say is unimportant. What you have to say is all important. And so help us to listen. We love you. We trust you. Amen. Do you remember back being a child 
uh, and saying, I promise, and it kind of leveled up a situation. You know what I'm talking about? Like if you were communicating with another kid and the words, I promise, were invoked, it sort of inspired a deeper level of seriousness about what was being communicated, except if the person saying, I promise to you, or perhaps you are the person who uh, was scoundrelly enough to do this, had their hand behind their back when they said, I promise. You know what's going on behind the back? Fingers crossed. You all know because you've either done it or had it done to you. When I was a kid, rule follower that I am, if someone said, I promise, and had their fingers crossed behind their backs, oh man, that irked me. Uh, if someone said, I promise, that was a serious, serious invocation to me. Being a rule follower, as uh, many of you have personal experience with me as a rule follower. Well, there are people in the world who take promises even more seriously uh, than eight-year-old Zach. Usually, these promises, the, the most serious of promises in the world around us today are referred to with another word, a vow. A vow. There are a few different types of vows that are common in our society, one of which many of you have entered into, a a vow of covenant marriage. But uh, one of the most common types of vows, besides the marriage vow, I was thinking about what's one vow aside from marriage that most people in the room will have heard of. I think this is one that you will have heard of. It's a vow of celibacy. Anybody heard of a vow of celibacy? Few people. A vow of celibacy is a vow that someone would make, usually someone entering the priestly orders, and they will make this vow of celibacy, which is a promise to God before witnesses that they are going to abstain from marriage and any sort of sexual relations for the duration of their life. And this vow of celibacy had a specific purpose, has a specific purpose. The purpose of the vow of celibacy is to set aside any and all things that could distract you from being fully devoted to serving the Lord. And so someone entering the the priestly order will make this vow of celibacy saying, I will remain single and free from sexual relations for my entire life so that I may Fully focus on the Lord. This is rooted in in the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He said that for those of you who are unmarried, it's better if you are able to remain unmarried so that you can serve the Lord with all that you have and all that you are. Uh, And not to say that marriage is bad. In fact, the scriptures say that marriage is a gift. But Paul says that for those who are able, able to control your passions or who are just willing to be single, that if If you do that, you're able to serve the Lord more fully. This is a a vow of celibacy. Well, this passage in Judges chapter uh, 16, and really this whole story of Samson, is a story about a vow. It's the vow of the Nazarite. But before that, let's get into a little bit of context about the book of Judges. So in the book of Judges, it's this period in Israel's history where they've already been slaves in Egypt, they've already been freed, they've already wandered in the wilderness, they've already entered the promised land and kind of 
gotten rid of the Canaanites and, and made their home in the promised land of Canaan. And they've been living here, and Joshua, who led them into Canaan, their leader, has now died. And they enter into this period of the judges. And this period of the judges in the book of Judges is marked by this cycle that repeats itself over and over again. The cycle begins with the people of Israel in sin. And they, it, there's this kind of chilling phrase that is uh, gone to over and over again in the book of Judges. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what they thought was right. Everyone did what they thought was right. And what they thought was right was to sin. And they chased after foreign gods. They ignored the God who brought them out of Egypt. Uh, and it begins this cycle where the people of Israel would fall into sin and kind of devote themselves to sin. And then the Lord would allow them to be captured by one of the neighboring nations. They'd live in slavery, being owned and oppressed by this neighboring nation for a period of years. And then they'd be humbled. They'd cry out to the Lord asking for help, and he would raise up a judge. And this judge would come and, and usually in a military fashion set them free from their captors. And then the, the text will say, and there was rest in the land for X number of years while this judge ruled. And then the judge would die and the cycle would repeat itself. Sin, slavery, please help us. Judge, deliverance, rest. Over and over and over again. And this is where we find ourselves in the story of Samson. Samson was one of the judges raised up to deliver Israel. And he uh, comes into the story, actually, in Judges chapter 13. And in chapter 13, verse 1, we'll have it on the screen, we begin a new cycle. It says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And then enters the next phase of the cycle. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah, from the clan of the Danites, which means he's an Israelite man. He had a wife who was childless and unable to give birth. Now, if we know Hebrew history, whenever there's a Hebrew woman who is barren, that means something exciting is about to happen, right? We've got Abraham and Sarah. We've got uh, Hannah, the mother of Samuel. We've got Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. This means pay attention because something exciting is about to happen. Well, in verse 3, the angel of the Lord appears to this barren woman and said, You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So, Samson is promised to a barren woman, and we get this word that he is going to be a Nazarite. Now, this is different from Nazarite, right? Jesus of Nazareth was a Nazarite, which means he was from the town of Nazareth. This is Nazarite, with an I instead of an A, and it, it's a same root word, but it's something entirely different. To be a Nazarite was to make a vow that set you apart, as the Lord said in this text, to be dedicated fully to the Lord. In Samson's case, from the womb. And this Nazarite vow comes from the law of Moses in the book of Numbers, chapter 6. 
And in Numbers chapter 6, the Lord is giving Moses the law that's to govern the people of Israel right after they've been freed from Egypt. And uh, the Lord says this about the Nazarite vow. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite, they must abstain from wine and other fermented drink, and must not drink vinegar made from wine or other fermented drink. They must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. As long as they remain under their Nazarite vow, they must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or skins. During the entire period of their Nazarite vow, no razor may be used on their head. They must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair grow long. And finally, throughout the period of their dedication to the Lord, the Nazarite must not go near a dead body. Even if their own father or mother or brother or sister dies, they must not make themselves ceremonially unclean on account of them, because the symbol of their dedication to God is on their head. Throughout the period of their dedication, they are consecrated, set apart to the Lord. So what do we have going on here? Well, really to break it down, it's three things. The Nazarite vow means three things. You are uh, to abstain from wine. And this text goes so far as to say, don't even go near anything from the vine. Don't go near grapes or raisins or even their seeds or skins, which I guess maybe some people would eat that without the rest of the grape, but that seems weird to me. Uh, But just stay away from the vine completely. No wine is the simple piece of this vow. The second is no haircuts. For the entire period of your Nazarite vow, you're to let your hair grow long. It says it's a symbol of your dedication to the Lord. And the third and final piece of the Nazarite vow is don't come into contact with or even go close to a dead body. No corpses, no wine, no haircuts, no corpses. Uh, And So this is the Nazarite vow that the angel of the Lord is referring to in Judges chapter 13, talking about Samson. However, there are a few things specific to Samson's vow that are different from in Numbers chapter 6. In chapter 13 of Judges verse 5, it says, uh, the Lord says to the woman, "'You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor,' Because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. And here's the first difference of Samson's vow. If you'll recall in Numbers chapter 6, there was this period of years that was referenced. Someone would willingly step into making a Nazarite vow, and it would be temporary. Someone would say, I need to go through a period of five years of a Nazarite vow, dedicated to the Lord fully, No wine, no corpses, no haircuts for five years uh, as some sort of religious experience. Or maybe it would be 10 years or, or one year, and people would do it for a variety of reasons. But Samson's is different. Samson's vow is not only not entered into willingly, it's made from before he's even conceived. It is to be for his entire life, from womb to death. And the other thing that's unique about Samson's vow is he's dedicated to God for a specific purpose. The text says he will take the lead or he will begin the process of delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. 
Now, the fact that this vow is made on Samson's behalf by God, he has no choice in the matter, and it's not for a period of years, it's for his entire life. It seems a little bit unfair, doesn't it? It seems a little bit unfair that that his life is going to look a certain way, and he doesn't have any say in the matter. Uh, And I hear that. There's a couple of reasons that help make this a little more palatable. The first uh, requires the use of your imagination. Imagine with me for a second that God... The God who created the galaxies, the God who created you, the God who keeps things moving in life, the God who's sovereign, all-powerful, almighty, the God who if you look at him in the face, you will instantaneously die unless there's some divine act of mercy, the God whose glory shines so brightly you can't even look at him and you have to look away. Imagine this God shows up at your house looks you in the face and says, I have a special job for you. You are going to save your people. It puts it in a little bit of a different light. You're probably not going to feel like, oh, God, me? Why do I have to do this? And you're not just going to whine to this God of the universe. You're going to obey, and you're probably going to feel honored to be chosen and selected for such a special task. The second reason that this is a little more fair, a little more okay than it seems on the surface, is that as we walk through Samson's story, we'll see that over and over and over again, Samson is not the one who keeps his vow. In fact, Samson hardly keeps his vow at all. He he pretty much breaks his vow on every page. It is rather the Lord who keeps this vow. Because it was God's vow in the first place, wasn't it? God made this vow. Your son is going to be the one who will begin the process of delivering Israel from the Philistines. And we see this played out in the story. So remember, no wine, no haircuts, no dead bodies. And we're going to give Samson a grade on how he does throughout this story for each of these categories. First is wine. Now, in Samson's story, there are several spaces that Samson inhabits that... Really, if you're not drinking wine, it'd be pretty shocking. It'd be super weird, like a seven-day feast. And um, but the text never says directly that he drank any wine. So let's give Samson the benefit of the doubt and give him an A plus on wine. Good job, buddy, on keeping your vow of the Nazarite for the category of wine. What about haircuts? Well, Samson does pretty good with haircuts uh, for the majority of his life. He keeps anyone from, with a razor far away from his head. He lets his hair grow out until near the end of his life, he finally allows a haircut. So we'll give Samson like a B minus on the haircut, which is a respectable grade uh, for most people, except for the type A 4.0 people that are out there. Um, but for normal people, B minus, that's a passing grade. Um, and then the final category, what about no corpses? Well, uh, Samson gets an F on no corpses. Uh, Failing grade for Samson. Let's uh, jump into this. Samson really has a problem with dead bodies. I mean, he is constantly coming into contact with dead bodies, and he kind of seems to like it. In Judges chapter 14 is the first instance. He's traveling along the road with his family, and it says a young lion walks up to them roaring. So this lion is meaning business. And it says in verse 
6 of chapter 14, that the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as if he might have torn a young goat. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I could tear a young goat in half. But Samson, so he's apparently pretty strong anyways, but he tears a lion in half like it's just a baby goat. I mean, his bare hands rips this lion in half. Now, we can give him a little bit of uh, compassion on this breakage of the vow, right? Because as soon as the lion is ripped in half, it's a dead body all of a sudden, right? He's touching it. He's close to it. We give him a little bit of grace because it's either do or die in this scenario, right? This lion's either going to eat him or Samson's going to kill it and he's going to survive. Now, in Numbers chapter 6, there's a provision. If you accidentally break your vow or you get forced into a situation with a dead body, you can sort of renew your vow and be cleansed and it's okay. Um, But Samson, he doesn't go into that. He doesn't do that. In fact, uh, the next day, he levels up his process into something that's a little bit less understandable. The next day, he's traveling back the other way from which he came down the road, and he sees the lion's carcass, and on the side of the road, there's this lion's carcass with a honeycomb inside of it. These busy bees had begun producing honey inside this lion's carcass, and Samson decides... Is this honey worth my Nazarite vow? I think it is. And he walks up to this lion and he just reaches inside. And I guess he's not afraid of getting stung by a bee. He just grabs the honey and he starts eating this honeycomb while he's walking down the road. And he breaks his Nazarite vow in a a way that just kind of trivializes his vow. It's, it's not even a life or death situation. He shows no respect for this Nazarite vow. And, and yet, the Lord remains faithful to his vow. When Samson breaks his vow, the Lord doesn't, time and again. And the next time that Samson has an opportunity to come into contact with dead bodies comes in the next chapter, chapter 15. And and in chapter 15, Samson goes on a killing spree. Uh, In verse 8, Samson is around a a group of Philistines, and there's sort of a, a fighting situation at hand. And the text says that he attacked them viciously, and slaughtered many of them. Now, I don't know about you, but slaughtered might be the most violent word in the English language. Slaughtered, and Samson attacks them viciously and slaughters many of them. And once again, there's no renewal of the vow, no ritual cleansing. He just comes into contact with all these dead corpses. In fact, he created these corpses and breaks his vow Yet again, well, the chapter of killing is not over. A few verses later in verse 15, Samson is yet again in a situation with a bunch of Philistines. And it says here in verse 15, finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. We've heard this story in Sunday school. Samson killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Not only did he break his vow with a thousand Philistine corpses, but he thought, you know what, why don't we just add a donkey carcass onto the the pile, all right? Samson had a problem with dead bodies. Well, finally, in Judges chapter 16, we come to the most famous part of Samson's story, Delilah. 
You all remember the story from Sunday school, or maybe you've read this in Judges yourself. Delilah, Samson and Delilah, those two names almost always go together. We, we hardly ever say Samson without saying and Delilah. Uh, I used to um, work at a pizza restaurant, and we listened to one radio station, uh, Sunny 99.1. Anybody listen to Sunny 99.1? I don't know if she's still around because I don't listen to the radio anymore, but you remember the evening DJ Delilah. Right? She's pretty good. Uh, she's got decent taste in music and decent, uh, you know, relationship advice I learned over a period of years working for this pizza restaurant. Um, but her parents had a lot of guts. Her parents had a lot of guts. Not that Delilah sounds like a bad name or anything, but the namesake, the original Delilah, is not a good lady. All right? So for parents to name their kid Delilah, it's a bold choice because Delilah wasn't great. However, Samson really thought Delilah was all that. He uh, saw her, and without really any interaction, he fell in love with Delilah. This is a love at first sight kind of situation, and he was blinded by his love for Delilah. And we have this kind of crazy story that we've all heard. Delilah is approached by her Philistine compatriots, and they say, hey, we're going to give you a lot of money if you can get Samson's secret out of him. By the way, just like a little underlying detail of the story, Samson's strength was so otherworldly that even the Philistines knew it's not just him, right? There, there is a secret to this. Something is going on here that's giving him strength that's outside of himself. The Philistines could see that. I don't know if Samson could see that. They say, get the secret of Samson's strength, and if you do and deliver him into our hands, we're going to make you filthy rich. And so Delilah, one evening, as they're hanging out together, Samson and Delilah, unmarried, by the way, but he's just living at her house, and, um, and she says, hey, honey, what's the secret to your strength? I mean, won't you just tell me how to uh, like buy you, bind you up and subdue you? Which, if anyone ever asks you that, don't tell them how to do it. <laughs> it's ridiculous. This story is ridiculous. Samson was really full of himself. Someone says to him, what's the secret to, to bind you up and, and subdue you? And he says, well, let me tell you the secret. If you get seven fresh bowstrings that haven't even been dried out yet, uh, which is the last stage of making bowstrings, um, and you tie me up with it, I'll become weak like any other man. And so they go to sleep together, and in the night, uh, Delilah gets seven fresh bowstrings, and she ties Samson up, and then she says, Samson, wake up! The Philistines are upon you! And of course, Samson wakes up, and he breaks the bowstrings as easily as you would break a young goat or a a uh, piece of raw spaghetti or something, and he defeats the Philistines that were there to capture him. And Delilah comes to Samson, and it just gets crazier and crazier each day. She comes to Samson, and she says, Samson, you made me look like a fool in front of my friends. Why would you do that? Can't you just tell me the secret to your strength? I mean, think of, you know, it's me, Samson. You love me. And he says, okay, you're right. I, I shouldn't have done that. I'll, I'll tell you the secret. All you got to do is get some brand new ropes that have never been used on anything else and tie me up with them, and I will lose all my strength and become just a regular person. 
And so they go to bed again that night, and Delilah wakes up, and she ties him up with some brand new ropes, and then she says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he wakes up, and the text says he just breaks them as if they were charred flax, uh, just burned up into shreds, and rips them off and fights off the Philistines. And Delilah comes to Samson again and says, Samson, how could you do this to me? I mean, it's me. You know me. We, have I ever led you astray? Just tell me the secret to your strength. And Samson says, you're right, my bad. Here's the secret. And he actually gets kind of close to the truth this time. He says, if you take my seven dreadlocks of hair and you weave them into the loom that you have in the other room and you tighten it up real good, I will be as helpless as a kitten. And so they go to bed again another night. And she weaves his hair into the loom all throughout the night. And then she yells, Samson, wake up! The Philistines are upon you. And he, of course, just breaks the loom, gets up, and he defeats the Philistines. And and this time, Delilah's feelings are truly hurt. And I just don't relate to Samson in this at all. But she says, Samson, if you really loved me, you would tell me, how to kill you. (laughs) If you really love me, you would tell me the secret to your great strength. And it says that she nagged him day after day after day, and he got so sick of it. He was sick to death. Turned out to be literal in a moment. Sick to death, and he said, all right, I'll tell you my secret. And he told her, if you shave off my hair, it's the symbol of my vow, I will become like anyone else. I will have absolutely no strength. Um, And the real crazy part that makes us genuinely ask the question, not even in a humorous way, is why did Samson go to sleep at Delilah's house that night after he told her, when you cut my hair, I'll become like anyone else? Because he was telling her the truth. And he knew he'd been ambushed three nights in a row. He knew if he told her this, that she was going to cut off his hair when he went to sleep and bring in her Philistine pals and that he was going to be taken captive and perhaps killed. Why did he tell her and then go to sleep in her lap, the text says? You ever thought about that? Well, the story breaks open for us in chapter 16, verses 19 and 20. It'll be on the screens for you. Chapter 16, verses 19 and 20. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him, and his strength left him. Then she called just as the other nights before. Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, and here's the key. He thought, I will go out as before and shake myself free. You see, friends, in one sense, Samson knew that his strength was a gift from the Lord that he had been blessed, chosen from before his birth for a special purpose and given the gifts and the tools to accomplish that purpose. In one sense, he knew that 
perfectly well. But in another sense, somewhere in a much deeper place in his heart, he didn't know that. He thought somewhere deep down, my strength, maybe it's from the Lord, but you know, I'm, I'm a pretty strong guy. My strength, it, it might be from me. And the fact that Samson believed his strength was not a gift from the Lord, but was his own, was the reason why he was willing to tell Delilah, shave off all my hair, then capture me, and I won't have any strength. And then he went to sleep at her house because he believed, deep down, that he was going to be fine. He didn't need his hair. He didn't need the Lord. It wasn't from the Lord in the first place. He was strong enough to fight off the Philistines on his own. And man, that's such an easy place to live. That's such an easy place for you and I to live, brothers and sisters, especially if you're a successful person in life. If you're successful, that's such an easy place to live. It's so easy to know in one sense, yeah, my blessings come from the Lord, right? My, 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 the Lord is my provider. He provides my house, my food, my job. All my blessings are from God. We know that in one sense. But in a much deeper sense, it's a lot harder to not believe that maybe my blessings are a result of my own gifts, my own talents, my own strength, my own drive for success. I'm guilty of this too. I, I, many of you know I'm in seminary right now, and if you were in worship sometime about a year ago, uh, we celebrated as a family that I received a full-ride scholarship for my seminary. Uh, and, and that was an incredible blessing from the Lord. And in fact, I would not be able to be in seminary if I didn't get a full-ride scholarship because I can't afford it. It's expensive, and I can't afford it. But I believed that God was calling me into pastoral ministry, and that involved going to seminary. And so we, as a family, stepped out in faith and, and said, okay, God, we're going to go to seminary, like you said, but if I'm going to go, you're going to have to pay for it, Lord, because I can't. And the Lord provided me with a scholarship, and I know that, in a sense. But if I'm being completely honest with myself and with you, Somewhere deep inside, you know, I know that I'm a pretty smart guy. Right? School has always sort of come easily to me. High school, college, good grades were easy to get. Always easy to, you know, be liked by my teachers, especially my mom when I was homeschooled in high school. But even in, even in college and in seminary, school's just come easy for me. And in one sense, I know that my scholarship, the provision of that comes from the Lord. But in another sense, if I'm being entirely honest, there's probably a part of me that thinks, yeah, but if God didn't provide that scholarship, I probably could have got one anyways. I'm pretty smart. I probably could have did this for myself. Maybe you can relate to this sort of thinking. Maybe it's your really nice house or 
your wonderful marriage. You and your, your spouse don't fight that much, and you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good at this marriage thing. Or, or you have a, a great job, and you're really successful at work, and, and you just get blessings left and right, promotion, promotion, raise, uh, relocation to a great spot that you've always wanted. Maybe it's your ability to, to build friendships. And anytime you walk in a room, you're just kind of someone that people easily like. Or maybe it's even your self-discipline and your, your spirituality. Maybe you think, yeah, you know, I'm pretty good at following Jesus. All my own strength. This sort of thing is exactly what Jesus was speaking to in Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 and 24, it'll be on the screens. Jesus was speaking to his disciples. And he said, then he said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Earlier we used the word successful. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples, taking Jesus seriously as we should, respond with this question. Well, then who can be saved, Jesus? And Jesus says, with man, or you could say, with my own strength, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So Samson, not believing that his strength was a gift from God, but was really from himself, gave away the secret, and he finds himself captured with bronze chains, both of his eyes gouged out by the Philistines, and he's in prison, milling grain, and then there's this feast. The Philistines have a celebratory feast of worship to worship the false god Dagon, and they decide, you know what, we should bring Samson out to entertain us. And so there's Samson, and he's brought out, he has no eyes, no strength, his life is totally ruined. And the text says that he's forced to perform commentators wonder what sort of performance this might have been that the inclination by most is that this was some sort of sexual slavery he had no strength anymore to perform feats of strength so at best he's just on display that's good Do y'all mind if I just keep talking? (laughs) So, at best, Samson is just on display. Here we go. Thanks, guys. At worst, he's being used. I mean, you talk about your life is over. You were on the mountaintop. Strongest human on planet Earth. And now you're in the deepest valley. And in this place, Samson gets closer to God than anywhere else in his entire life. 
In Judges chapter 16, verses 28 to 30, Samson finally prays. It says this. Then Samson prayed to the Lord. Sovereign Lord, remember me. What a beautiful prayer. If the Lord would just remember us. Please, God, strengthen me just once more. And let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. And we hear in this prayer someone who truly knows, I have nothing unless God gives it. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood. Bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other, Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus, he killed many more when he died than while he lived. And in a final act of God keeping his vow, Samson finally learns, I have nothing except that which is from the Lord. And so maybe you're asking yourself the question right now, what am I to do with this? And if you're asking yourself that question, then my invitation for you today is to hear Samson speaking to you from the text. And to hear Samson say, you don't have to follow my path. You don't have to do it the way I did. Humble yourself before the Lord. Confess that everything you have, every blessing, every good and perfect gift comes from God. Humble yourself before the Lord today, tomorrow, and every day all over again. Don't let it go so far as I did. And if you're hearing that and you want to say yes and accept Samson's pleading... You might be wondering, well, how can I do that? Because it's really hard, right? It's really hard to, to rid yourself of pride and to fully know and be convinced deep, deep down that everything you have is from God. And so I'm going to give you a small practical way that you can try this. It's this. Allow your imagination... To be captured by things that are bigger than you are. Allow your imagination to be captured by things that are bigger than you are. I remember the first time that I felt I came into contact with a strength that made me realize, wow, I'm not that strong, am I? I was traveling in the Philippines, uh, and we went swimming one day in the South China Sea, and I was out there in the water swimming, and all of a sudden this giant wave came up over my head, crashed down on me, and I did like seven or eight somersaults under the water, and there wasn't a thing I could do about it. And I made my way to the shore, and I sat there and thought, wow. I'm really not all that strong, am I? And I remember sitting there on the beach and looking out across the vast sea, just being amazed. Wow, I am so small. Friends, allow your imagination to be captured by things that are bigger than you are. 
Allow the magnitude of God's creative powers to capture your imagination and overwhelm you. And from there, allow your heart to be flooded with the magnitude of the one who could hold such a vast creation in the palm of his hand. And then allow yourself to be overcome by the fact that the one who holds the world in the palm of his hand would be humiliated, beaten, enslaved, stripped of clothes and dignity, and nailed to a cross for you. If you want to humble yourself before the Lord, gaze long and hard at the cross. Pour out your humiliation, your failures, your sin, your pride. Give him everything. Because there's one last detail in this story, which is that even though Samson was a total failure, God loves Samson. And God loves you too. So come to the cross. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, please help us. This is very hard. Jesus himself, you said it. It's very hard for the rich and the successful to enter the kingdom of heaven. But we profess and proclaim that with you, all things are possible. Remind us that all of our gifts, our blessings, our strength, our success comes from you. Rid us of any self-filling of confidence in our own strength. Fill us with your spirit. And now, Lord, as we move into a time of our offerings and tithes, we ask your blessing on the gifts that you would multiply them and make them effective to bear fruit in your kingdom. Do what you want with them. And we pray also for the givers that they would be blessed with the freedom that comes from giving things away. We love you, God. Because you first loved us. Amen.